This podcast may include adult content. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories, Sext, 1947 by Terry Collette and The Cutting of Carrots by Kevin P. Keating. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts. Sext, 1947, written by Terry Collette, read by Kelly Shriver. Listening time, 3 minutes, 10 seconds. Sext, 1947. Il Dio e il mie testimonia e guida, Sister Maria the Refectorian had said, as Sister Teresa remembered, walking past the refectory, touching the wall. God is my witness and guide, she translated, feeling the rough brick beneath her fingers. She stood, turned to look at the cloister garth. Sunlight played on the grass. Flowers added color to borders and eyes, she thought, letting go of Maria's words as if they were balloons. Ache in limbs, a slowness in her movements. Age, she muttered inaudibly. The war had taken her cousin's sons in death. Two of them, Peter and Paul. Burma and D-Day. Three years or more since. She brought hands together beneath the black surge of her habit. Flesh on flesh. Sister Claire had touched. Not over much, not over much. Papa would lift her high in his arms as a child, she mused, her memory jogged by the sunlight on the flowers. Higher and higher. Poor Papa. The spidery writing unreadable in the end. She sniffed the air bell rang from church tower. Sext. She looked at the clock on the cloister tower wall, lowered her eyes to the grass. So many greens. Jude had lain with her once, or was it more? She mused, turning away from cloister wall and the sight of grass and flowers. Thirty years since he died. Blown to pieces, Papa had written. Black ink on white paper sheet. Flesh on flesh, kiss to lip and lip. She paused by church door, allowed younger nuns to pass. So young these days, she thought, bowing, nodding her head. Placing her stiff fingers in the stoop, she made cross from breast to breast. Smell of incense, scent of wood, bodies close, age and time. She walked to her place in the choir stall, bowed to crucified, tabernacled, kneeled, closed eyes, murmured prayer, heard the rustle of habits clicking of rosaries, breathing close. Opened eyes. Sister Claire across the way. A nod and a smile, almost indiscernible to others, she thought, returning the same. Mother Abbess tapped wood on wood. Chant began. Fingers moved. Sign of cross. Mumbled words. Forty years of prayer and chant. Same such of fingered rosaries. Hard beds. Dark night of soul and such. She sensed Papa lifting her high in thought at least, Mama's touch on cheek and head, Jude's kiss, embrace of limbs and face. Il Dio e il mie testimonia e guida, she recalled, God my witness and guide. Closed eyes, sighed, Sister Claire had cried, had whispered, witness and guide, witness this and guide, she murmured between chant, prayer, and the scent of incense on the air.
Terry Collette is a 59-year-old poet who has been writing since 1972. He has had two slim volumes of poems published in 1974 and 1978. Since that time, he has had poems and short stories printed in anthologies, magazines, and newspapers. He is married with eight children and eight grandchildren. The Cutting of Carrots, written by Kevin P. Keating, read by Mark Rushton. Listening time, 15 minutes, 20 seconds. There is an ascending and descending order in the cutting of carrots. Think of a musical scale. The slicing of carrots can be a precise thing, like fingers gliding nimbly over the keys of a piano, octave after octave, shimmering glissandos, rolling arpeggios, a forward momentum, a driving rhythm, a skill that is unquestionably athletic as well as artistic. I am not the only one who feels this way. Any chef who has for a decade or more devoted himself to the cutting of carrots will gladly tell you the same thing. Yet the diners who anesthetize themselves with bottles of Cabernet, the ones who devour too quickly and too merrily the salads and entrees prepared for them by culinary craftsmen with their strange devotion to gastronomic virtuosity, never suspect that so much precision goes into so small a detail. Call it a kind of madness, but if you pause for a moment to consider the matter, if you think of your favorite symphony or epic poem or philosophical insight, you might find that the greatest accomplishments are really just reflections of some kind of madness. And who else but a madman would devote himself year after year to the cutting of carrots? There is the story of William Howard Taft's chef de cuisine, a man with the unlikely name of Joe Mack, who, in due course, became one of the president's personal secretaries and closest confidants. Mack, who could wield a pen as easily as a knife, recorded Taft's thoughts about every conceivable topic, from comments about impending agricultural bills to scathing remarks about certain Supreme Court justices. Taft's dream was to become a justice himself, and envy often got the better of him. After writing all day in a leather-bound diary, Mack would head straight to the White House kitchen where he prepared old-fashioned dishes for the staggeringly rotund commander-in-chief, whose prodigious intellect was surpassed only by his prodigious appetite for mutton chops. From time to time, Mack apparently confused his dual roles. In the notes he kept, we find entries about Taft's private discussions with heads of state and his opinions of each, which were cooperative, which difficult, and which had remarked about his appalling girth. But between these entries, Mack would insert clever recipes or some sage advice on how to marinate a wild turkey vulture. Though this history may strike the common reader as rather obscure, we can now say with confidence that beginning with the Taft administration, there has been a close association between food and power in the United States. One might even go so far as to claim that such a relationship is now part of our national character. And all because a man named Joe Mack thought of adding carrots to a pot of roast beef. I know these things because... Although I am a mere slicer of carrots in the crowded kitchen of an upscale restaurant, I am an autodidact with an insatiable appetite for knowledge of all kinds, 
especially knowledge about the labyrinth history of food preparation. Had the university offered a major in food history, I would have pursued a much different path in life. Admittedly, I am more scholar than chef, but do not mistake this for self-pity. The slicing of carrots is satisfactory work, and I am paid a fair wage. Though I have other duties, it is in the slicing of carrots that I find the most pleasure. The sound of the knife striking the cutting board can induce a hypnotic state even in those accustomed to such a rhythm and meter, and as I begin my chopping and dicing, I detect a subtle shift in consciousness among my squabbling co-workers. Things fall into place. The waiters and wine stewards and busboys pause from taunting one another. The cacophony of clattering pots and pans becomes, at least for a moment, harmonious, and I am their leader, the percussionist keeping time. We glance at the clock. In twenty minutes the restaurant will open its doors, and there is a sense that this night, like all nights, will be another resounding success. The restaurant is an idealized place, all shadows and light and complementary color schemes, with an Art Deco-inspired decor meant to draw diners into a new psychic landscape, one that differs completely from the unappealing realities just outside the door. But this fact, you see, is something of a paradox, since the restaurant will remain in business only as long as it mimics the tiresome trends of the outside world. This is why I place such a high value in the cutting of carrots, a practice that has gone on virtually unchanged for generations. Archaeological evidence suggests that the Greeks of antiquity sliced their carrots in much the same way we do today, and some scholars have suggested that the Dur priests of the Mesopotamian mystery cults sliced carrots in preparation for human sacrifices atop their mensuring ziggurats. That the slicing of carrots may be as old as the Epic of Gilgamesh gives me great comfort and fills me with a sense of awe. Yet the casual diner is not interested in trivia of this sort. Because so many people demand what passes for novelty these days, pretty murals and jazz combos and fresh flowers in the restrooms, they no longer see the profound message concealed in the time capsule of a carrot sliced thick and coarse like sheets of parchment. Of course, there is much skill that goes into the cutting of carrots. First, one must choose a knife for its craftsmanship and durability, test the handle, smell the wood, gaze at his reflection in the glimmering blade. Most chefs prefer the ever-reliable master-of-cooking knife, a French utensil with a blade that is thin and deep and designed to cut objects with great precision, though I have known chefs to use simple table knives as well. I once had the pleasure of watching an eccentric Portuguese chef use a hunting knife, a barbarous-looking thing with a thick, corrugated blade. Never taking his eyes from the cutting board, he sliced a dozen carrots and then arranged the slices one by one on a platter so that they resembled a massive swells of an angry sea. Such is the artistry of the greatest chefs. I am not one of them. True, I am proficient at my work, but my creations cannot compare to those of the great masters. My slicing lacks inspiration, but unlike some of my contemporaries, I have the humility to admit this. Ours is a generation lacking in humility. Men come forward without hesitation to profess their greatness. History will judge the validity of their claims. Some say that food is 
far too subjective to be measured even by the inexorable sands of time, but one can just as easily make the same claim about literature or music. Plato was right. Somewhere in the ether there is a thing called perfection, a phenomenon so rare, so elusive, that we are largely unaware of its existence until one day, as if by magic, it presents itself at our table in the form of a tangy glass of carrot juice, light on the ginger, heavy on the orange peel. The dishwasher knows nothing of perfection. He is a common man who, as he scrubs grease-splattered skillets and wine glasses smeared with bright red lipstick, watches a portable TV that he's placed on a shelf and hackles with delight at Bugs Bunny cartoons. I had no idea grown men took an interest in such stuff, but then I had always suspected that we are a society obsessed with infantile pleasures. Evidence abounds. Obese men and women trundle across a landscape decimated by fast food chains and donut shops. Adult relationships have devolved into something base and primeval. Love is no longer an art form. When I step into the dining room, I observe the faces of the diners, who, with the aid of the wine steward, our pusher in residence, laugh uproariously or stare at each other with uninhibited lust. Poetry has been usurped by vulgarity, subtlety by crudeness. Sometimes I spot a middle-aged couple eating in silence. They try, but often fail, not to glare at each other. The flickering candlelight is meant to disguise more than the wrinkles and blemishes they've earned over the course of their shared lives. Etiquette has become taboo. Sometimes a customer will storm out of the restaurant in a rage. Who knows why? The other diners don't seem to mind. They come to an upscale restaurant as much for the theatrics as for the food. The dishwasher is their ambassador and proud herald, a man who knows this counterfeit culture inside and out. If only I didn't rely on this loathsome man to descend into the shady underworld to obtain certain things for me, things that more and more have come to define my life. What choice do I have but to smile and pretend to enjoy his company, his foul odor, his raucous laughter? As he walks by my station, he grabs a carrot from the cutting board, chomps loudly on it, and, in his best Mel Blanc voice, says, Eh, what's up, Doc? There is a commotion in the dining room. A hefty man in a cheap toupee and a wrinkled suit demands that a dish be taken back to the kitchen. The carrots are not cooked to his liking. I've seen him before. He's an accomplished shakedown artist who has choked on chicken bones, gone into coughing fits, fallen out of chairs, and slipped on bathroom floors. He will, in fact, do just about anything to get a free meal, or, failing that, the promise of a gift certificate. He is, I am told, a salesman of some kind, and the restaurant has long been a popular place for people in that profession. Salespeople tend to have more discriminating palates than the casual diner, and request that their carrots come prepared in a variety of ways. Stewed, boiled, baked, stir-fried, roasted. With its eclectic mix of global dishes, the restaurant has become the place to close important business deals. Only the poor and indigent who pass by our windows can possibly queer the deal, as they say. Gentrification in this quarter of the city has been slow in coming, and there are a number of dark alleys that are best avoided. 
while the police have done an exemplary job of keeping the homeless and the insane away from our doors, we've had a few problems, the occasional knife-wielding hoodlum demanding a wallet or purse. Luckily, the manager is on excellent terms with the councilman, who often dines here, with an assortment of young ladies, and any difficulties we may experience are resolved within a day or two. Although surprisingly few horticulturalists have made a proper study of the matter, there are an estimated 80 varieties of carrot, each with an evocative name. The tip-top, oxart, swamp king, bolero, crusader. There are carrots of different shapes and sizes, colors and textures, roots and cores. Some are rough, some smooth, some have a sweet, mellow flavor, others a complex, earthy one. A great chef is always at pains to decide whether to use those robust carrots grown in the warmer climates of Louisiana or hardier ones grown in the tough soils of Ohio. Personally, I prefer to use the Zahir, a diminutive reddish variety found only in North Africa. But given the present political turmoil we find ourselves in today, Zahir carrots are exceedingly difficult to come by. The American writer Paul Bowles while living in Morocco, spent much of his time cultivating these carrots, which are said to have hallucinogenic properties, and served them to his unsuspecting guests. One guest was William Burroughs, whose ensuing visions and ecstasies produced some of the most imaginative and startling work. So prized is this carrot for its reputed medicinal and mind-altering effects that half-starved refugees, making their way across the Mediterranean to the shores of France, bring bunches of them in their rafts. They are a universal form of currency, easily converted to francs. In the narrow streets and alleys of Old Nice, the police raid houses and seize entire crates of the carrots. Inevitably, some corrupt low-ranking official, a sergeant or lieutenant, sells them to various bistros in the trendy Marseille neighborhood of Paris, where dignitaries dining along the Rue Saint-Croix de la Bretonnerie discuss the plight of North Africans, all the while knowing full well how the delectable carrots are obtained. None of this seems to trouble the French establishment, which tends to regard scandals as très chic. I must confess that I, too, enjoy a good scandal, and after the restaurant closes for the evening, I tidy up my station and nod to the manager, who only scowls in my direction. He thinks I am a craven fella, a scoundrel with many vices. Perhaps he's right, but it's late. I have been cutting carrots for many hours, and without pondering the matter further, I signal the dishwasher, who throws down his apron, and together we drive to a destitute quarter of the city, where he directs me through a maze of unfamiliar streets that lead eventually to a dingy marketplace, where we visit his connection, a small man of Moroccan descent, who operates a humble vegetable cart, and smells of the heavy blue smoke that curls from his hookah pipe. From time to time, he manages to obtain the precious Zahir carrots. Like me, his taste for the exotic and otherworldly has led him to a life of solitude, his wife and children having fled in the middle of the night, never to be heard from again. After I pay him the usual sum, I pop a carrot into my mouth, savor its sharp flavor, allow the vegetable to dissolve on my eager tongue, and I find myself chatting long into the night about the life and work of Paul Bowles and the modest and gratifying existence one can find in the cutting of carrots.
the end. Kevin P. Keening has never prepared carrots, nor has he attended culinary school, but he does teach English at Baldwin Wallace College near Cleveland, Ohio. His essays and fiction have been published in a number of literary magazines, including Fringe, Smokebox, Exquisite Corpse, Whiskey Island, Fiction Warehouse, Double Dare Press, The Oklahoma Review, The Spillrave Review, and many others. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.